Sentire Media. Hello everyone, you're listening to A History of Italy. Episode 80, Frederick's Boys and Here Come the French. In the last episode, we had a look at the first of the sons of Frederick II, Enzo, only to see him end up in prison in Bologna for the rest of his life, and giving rise to many a legend there. We then set up the situation with the other sons, the two legitimate ones, Conrad, who was 23 at the time of his father's death, and Henry, who was 12. The last son we mentioned was Manfredi, who was an illegitimate son from Frederick's long-time love, Bianca Lancia, a Piedmontese noblewoman, and he was to act as regent for his younger brother Henry, who was to be the king of Sicily while Conrad became the Holy Roman Emperor. We left off stating that, with rebellions growing all over the empire, and a papacy dead set on wiping the Hohenstaufen dynasty from the face of the earth, the brothers would have to stay alive and stay united, neither of which was going to be easy. The first to fail miserably in these two tasks was the youngest brother, Henry, who died at the age of 15. Anyone suspecting foul play at this point would probably put their money on the regent, Manfredi, but... At the time, suspicions fell on Conrad, who now no longer had a legitimate rival to his power. Mistrust grew between the two remaining brothers to a definitive breaking point in which Manfredi was stripped of all of the southern kingdom except for the lands that had been specifically left in his father's will. The only problem was that Conrad was up in Germany and Manfredi actually sitting on the lands he had just been stripped of, and possibly saying something like, Oh yeah? Do you want to come and make me? Conrad made his way down, more to assert his power over the peninsula, and put the Pope in his place rather than actually to get Manfredi. While he was at it, he took up the old family habit of torching rebellious northern cities, and made it all the way down to Basilicata in the south in time to die in 1254, leaving his young son Corradino. Now, just like that, it was all up to Manfredi of Sicily. First of all, he needed to bolster his meagre forces, so he headed off to Lucera. Does that ring a bell? If it doesn't, don't worry, I'll give you a quick reminder. In 1224, the Muslim population of Sicily had rebelled against the authority of Frederick II, and he had put down the rebellion quite quickly. He had then taken around 15,000 Muslims and set them up in the city of Lucera in Puglia, and eventually won their undying loyalty, and the Saracen troops would from then on be an important part of his armies, and the part that he trusted most. Now, his son, Manfredi, 
turned to those Saracens in the hopes that he could renew that old loyalty. It worked. So much so that he ended up also being known as the Sultan of Lucera. Thanks to his Saracen troops, Manfredi was able to defeat a papal force in Foggia on the 2nd of December 1254. Five days after the battle, the Pope at the time, Innocent IV, died. It only took the Cardinals a day to elect the next guy, who took the name of Alexander IV. Rather significant if you remember that Alexander III had been an important member of the Lombard League who had fought against Frederick Barbarossa. Alexander IV was fully bent on getting rid of Manfredi. First of all, he confirmed the excommunication that his predecessor had placed upon him, and then he tried to get the kings of England and Norway to participate in a crusade against Sicily with no luck. If you are wondering or trying to remember why the popes had such a bee in their bonnet about the whole Sicilian thing, we must remember that the church considered the kingdom of Sicily as its domain and the rulers, therefore, as its vassals. Also, it was a question of being able to choose your neighbours, which is quite important, you will understand. Alexander's idea was to get rid of Manfredi and substitute him, first of all with Edmund of Lancaster, something you English history buffs might remember. The deal was that Edmund's dad, King Henry III, would pay up 135,541 marks and help this lodge Manfredi in exchange for the kingdom. I'm not sure exactly what the sum was calculated on. I mean, the extra one mark. What difference was it going to make? Was it to pay for the ink and paper or something? Anyway, Henry's barons were having none of the Sicilian business, so although the Pope did end up with around 60,000 marks, nothing else really came of it all. Meanwhile, Manfredi became a rallying point for the Ghibelline cities in Italy, the pro-imperial anti-papal ones, and what really stung the Pope was that Rome herself went over to the Ghibelline camp under a podesta, a temporary communal ruler from Bologna, Brancaleone degli Andalò. Now, you know I try to avoid throwing too many names your way, but Brancaleone tickled my fancy. I must say because it reminded me of the film L'Armata Brancaleone with one of Italy's greatest actors, Vittorio Gasman. If you're interested in Italian culture as well as Italian history, I really suggest you go and look for it. I think you can find it free online, actually, on Rai 3. With his city under enemy control, there was nothing left for Pope Alexander to do but to head to Viterbo. Meanwhile, things went from good to better for Manfredi. In 1256, he had founded a city with his name, Manfredonia, which exists to this day, and the powers of Genoa and Venice had joined his cause. In 1258, a rumour went round that Corradino, son of Conrad, and legitimate heir to the throne of the Kingdom of Sicily, had died. So, Manfredi, from Regent, 
on the 10th of August, 1258, became king of Sicily. Soon after, surprise, surprise, Corradino wasn't really dead at all. He was all better. But what was done, was done. From then on, it really seemed like Manfredi could head nowhere but up. His influence extended to all of Italy. The new Ghibelline commune of Rome allied with him. In Tuscany, the Ghibelline Siena defeated the Guelph Florence at the Battle of Monteperi on the 4th of September 1260 and thus becoming the dominant power in Tuscany and also declared for Manfredi. The Ghibellines of the north also sided with him and now he had the chance to nominate representatives in Tuscany, the Duchy of Spoleto, the March of Ancona and in Lombardy. You can believe that apart from the stress of ruling over such a messy situation, Manfredi was definitely enjoying himself. He was a Hohenstaufen, like his father Frederick. He loved and was loved by women. He was always up for a good banquet and loved a good battle. He was sitting pretty. He was on top of the world. He was riding high. He was living the good life and so on. Then came the cherry on top of the cake. On the 25th of May, 1261, Pope Alexander died in Viterbo. What could possibly go wrong? I mean, the next Pope that came along would have been in the same situation, right? Well, Alexander IV was followed by Jacques Pantaleon, a Frenchman for a change, and one of the few Popes in history from then on who was not a Cardinal. Jacques took the name of Urban IV. Now, Urban IV had an ace up his sleeve. Said ace requires a little background regarding the issue of second and third sons. Starting with the Carolingians, the nobles of the Middle Ages had learned that the fastest and easiest solution to sort out the inheritance was to give everything to the firstborn son and then find some other way to sort out the others. For example, by getting them a nice bishopric especially before the great church reforms, when you could be a bishop and still do more or less what you wanted. Another option was to use the spare sons to go and expand your dominions, trying to add counties or duchies and so on. In this case, the spares could be a real resource rather than a problem. It is this issue that was used by the Pope to solve his little problem. He was a Frenchman, so, what better place to look up to than France, or what passed for France at the time? There was King Louis IX, and wouldn't you know it, he had a brother, Charles of Anjou. Well, before you could say Sacre Bleu, well, actually, no, it took ages, so much so that when Charles of Anjou was crowned King of Sicily on the 6th of January 1266, it was the next pope doing the crowning, Clement IV. But that's okay, because he was also a Frenchman, Guy Fouquois, also known as Guy le Ross, or Guy the Fat, or, if you prefer, Fat Guy. It had taken them quite a while to elect him, because for four months they had argued about the whole idea of actually calling Charles of Anjou and assigning him, as a vassal of the church, the Kingdom of Sicily. In the end, they agreed, and he was called. 
After having called in the Franks to get rid of the Lombards in the 8th century, the church now once again was calling in a foreign power to get rid of a local one, a habit that would now plague Italy for centuries. With the entrance of Charles of Anjou on the scene, the support that Manfredi had built for himself melted away. He didn't give up and run away, though. With a French, Papal and Guelph army descending, he gathered what troops he could and they met at Benevento. The forces lined up near an area of the Calore River that was crossed by a single bridge. Charles had an army composed of men from Provence, from the Languedoc region, and from Flanders as well as Italian mercenaries and Florentine knights from the Guelph faction. Manfredi also had some Italian mercenaries, as well as his vassals of the southern Italian kingdom, and, of course, the ever-present Saracen archers of Lucera. He interestingly also had a large contingent of German mercenaries that had a relatively new invention for the time, i.e. plate armour. Things kicked off with the Saracen archers and light cavalry attacking, but being pushed back. Following the first attack, it seems that there was either some miscommunication or an excess of enthusiasm and the German battalion crossed the bridge and started to plough into the enemy. They were seemingly unstoppable with the blows bouncing off the plate armour. However, the Angevin's troops soon realised that there were weak points in the armour, particularly under the armpits. Then, when that didn't always work, there was a trick that was quite dirty for the time. Aim for the horses. From that moment on, the tide of the battle turned. By now, almost all of Manfredi's troops had crossed the bridge, except for his Sicilian vassals and himself. Charles took advantage of the situation to surround the enemy army and trap them on their side of the river. Seeing that the day was lost, the Sicilian and southern Italian nobles took their troops and left the field. Manfredi was left alone, leaving the king with just a few loyal men. After exchanging his royal overclothes with his friend Tebaldo Annibali, Manfredi and his few remaining followers threw themselves into the battle in search of a glorious death, which they duly found. The date was the 26th of February. 1266. Dante Alighieri in the third canto of the Purgatory would have Manfredi say he had been killed by a sword slashed to the head and one to the body. Charles of Anjou buried the dead foe with honours, but the Pope was having none of this lovey-dovey business. He had the body exhumed and buried near a river so that the bones would be dispersed and lost. So, with King Enzo in prison in Bologna, the last of Frederick's sons mentioned in his will, was gone. Now, the only person really posing a threat to Charles taking control of his new kingdom was young Corradino, son of Corrado, who was hiding out safe in Bavaria. What was he going to do? Thanks very much to everyone for listening. Thanks in particular to my Patreon supporters, my Margarita Hack and Galileo Galilei level, Anthony G, Brandon S, C Lane, Daniel C, Dean V, Eric W, Gordon Z, Greg, Ignacio, Caitlin, Kevin, 
Marxist-Leninist Sicilian and Reactionary Venetian, Roberta D, Rodney N, Scott L, Shelby, and Stephen, and the super tippy-top group Maria Montessori and Dante Ligieri, Sen, Paolo, Lisa K, JW, and Andrew M. Thank you very much. Remember, if you want to get in touch, you can do so. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com. At the same URL, you can click through to our social media. We are on Twitter and on Facebook, and you can consult maps and timelines and so on. Remember, there's a competition on. Send in your favourite quotes from A History of Italy, or a quote you think should be in A History of Italy, and we'll get that put on some merchandise and shipped off to you if you are the quote chosen. Thanks again very much to everyone for listening, and until next time, arrivederci. Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.